Hello and welcome to Politics on Draft with me, Kartik Sawney. This week, uh, it's not going to be me that much. It's going to be James and our humbled friend of the podcast, uh, Josh Naylor Higgs. He's going to be here talking about the American midterms. So before we go on to those main two topics, um, which James and Josh will introduce, I wanted to talk about uh, our anti-bullying uh, ex-education minister Gavin Williamson. I'm, I'm not sure if everyone's seen the video that he did when he was education minister telling children not to bully other people, but that man's just been sacked, well, resigned uh, for bullying. He's also the only minister to have resigned for the th- out of the four prime ministers that we've had in the last two years, I think, um, to have resigned under three of them. Um, wow. So, yeah, that's a crazy s- statistic. He's resigned because uh, he is, was allegedly, I have to use the word allegedly because it's still a investigation going on, allegedly bullying former Chief Whip Wendy Morton. But if anyone has read the text and has half a mind knows that it's not alleged it was pretty serious, yeah. strong bullying going on there. Uh, but anyway, James, what are you drinking? Josh, what are you drinking? Good. I thought you were going to completely abandon that. Um, I'm having <laughs> a red wine from South Africa. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. Some like random thing that I found in my parents' home because I'm at my parents at the moment, um, which is rather unfortunate because it's not the sort of recording place I'd want to be doing this. But um, but yeah, so a bit of stolen red wine for me. How about you, Josh? I'm I'm going for a, a San Miguel straight out of the can. It's uh, it's a real it's a real joy. It's a real joy. Yeah, and just to, just to add on that Gavin Williams Williamson um, comment. I mean, this is a man who allegedly, obviously, got to say allegedly, but he used to walk around his office with his pet tarantula on his on his shoulder yes. called Cronus. This is allegedly the man who you know behaves like a villain. So it's it's shocking. I saw him I saw him recently I was in I was in Parliament and um it was just like I really had to like sort of bite my tongue a bit when I saw him because obviously you know we all went through the what we went through with regards to the education system being completely shafted by one man and he was that one man and it was a bit oh dear um slimy fellow a bit shorter than I expected but that's just I thought he was. Oh, I've never, I've never run into him, and I hope I don't. But um, I always thought he was quite a tall fella. But anyway, right, in comparison to Rishi Sunak, I think anyone's tall. <laughs> but yeah, um, is there anything more to add on Gavin Williamson? I think the question I posed is that you know, obviously, I think we're all glad that he's out of cabinet. Don't really know why he was even in it. I mean, he was a minister without portfolio. But you know, should this have happened sooner? I think the politics of it doesn't necessarily lie in Gavin Williamson's resignation. I think the politics of it lies in why was he hired by Rishi Sunak in the first place. So, you know, Rishi Sunak's been pledging this, you know, government, compassionate conservatism, government with integrity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a man who was hired because not irrespective of the fact that he was a bully, but because of the fact that he's a bully, because he's this sort of guy that's going to be able to influence, you know, votes in <laughs> votes in Parliament and stuff like that. So this is clearly a man. He's not chief whip. 
he once was, but he's not the chief whip, but he's clearly supposed to be an enforcer sort of figure. And he doesn't really come from any faction of the Conservative Party. He's one of the Nadim Zahawi sort of people that sort of sit anywhere and everywhere uh, in the Conservative Party. So it's interesting as to why he was hired. Um, He never should have been hired if it's genuinely a prime minister that's trying to pledge in it a government with integrity, but clearly that's just a nice little catchphrase for them. I think that's perfectly summed up, to be honest. I couldn't put that better um, myself. So shall we move on to, away from UK politics, uh, surprisingly? Not far away. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so shall we go straight into uh, my bit about populism? Let's go. Yeah. So um, the last sort of, so, uh, well, we've been, throughout the whole entire podcast series, we've been sort of loosely throwing around this word called populism, which most of our listeners may have heard sort of, you know, in the media and newspapers. Um, but it's a very ill-defined uh, sort of word in terms of what does it mean? Who are populists? What is populism? And so I thought we'd just have a little discussion about about it because you know it's got a lot of double meanings and people have interpreted it in many different ways so i i'm I'm gonna go to before we kind of go into the nitty-gritty of it i kind of want to find out your guys uh opinions off the bat so i'll I'll start with you josh obviously you know you are american politics experts and there might kind of be a slight sway in the way you interpret it but um what, what are your interpretations of populism yeah, absolutely. So um, I love being referred to as an expert in, a, <laughs> in America for this, for this podcast, but um, I, I've always understood it as a uh, an us versus them term, and it's always in, I, I would I would class it just to keep the definition as simple as possible, as a people versus an elite, um, or uh, a people versus an establishment, a people versus the political statement it's nearly always a majority nearly always a, an, an oppressed majority um versus versus what would be a um an elite a minority government and establishment etc and you can find that f- for, through sort of media but it's nearly always um also um proposed as a as a positive for the majority so it's never trying to change their views it's never trying to change their state uh, in sense of their way of life, it's always trying to um, sort of uh, give it give it a, a, a rosy picture and trying to um, just trying to just simply acknowledge their oppression and then give them a give them a voice uh, within politics and so on. So that's always been sort of how I've understood populism, and especially sort of I think obviously it's got a really American American take on it. So that that's where I'm coming from. Absolutely. And uh, I'll throw it over to you, Kartik, as well, because, I mean, you've done a lot of uh, sort of analysis and thoughts over Brexit, which was arguably labelled as a populist kind of campaign. So what's what's your sort of take on populism? I think it's a very fluid concept. Um, I'm going to say concept, which is deliberately vague. But, um, you know, the, the, the definition that Josh gave, it's true, but it's a very, very limited definition in terms of what it rose out of. So it rose out of the American Revolution in the late 18th century um, with people rebelling against, you know, basically the established elite who owned a lot of land, a lot of, unfortunately, people and a lot of factories in America. And it was framed as 
indeed an us versus them, the working class versus the elite. But it's changed into almost a strategy um, which has been utilised in the 21st century. And I'm, the reason why I'm talking in centuries now is because because it's such a fluid uh, concept. Um, but we can come on to more about what it's turned into. It's borderline turned into almost conspiracy theories to an extent. You know, you see a lot of uh, populist rhetoric rise out of organisation from like QAnon. And it's just ridiculous as to why people would believe a lot of the stuff. And when you look into why people would believe and why people would deliberately vote against their interests, you can come back to populism. So that that's my sort of very vague definition. Yeah, and I think both both of you have kind of hit on some quite key things about um, populism. Uh, th- I think the one thing that I want to say that you you, you highlighted, Carter, was that it's a it's an incredibly fluid um, concept in that it's kind of manifested itself in many different uh, terms. And there's kind of three ways three main ways in academia that we think of populism the first one is ideational so it being its own concrete ideology that entails the things that you know josh spoke about to do with the people versus the masses um there's the sort of discursive personalist argument which is about sort of individual figures who are able to kind of change the narrative of politics so these are your kind of your trump figures uh, your farages who kind of have, have taken this on and a very kind of media prevalent, etc. cetera. Uh, and then there's your strategic understanding, people who maybe embody populism to kind of gain power and to try and mobilise the masses. And this is something that has been heavily associated with Boris Johnson, but whether or not we can actually call him a populist is, is quite difficult. Now, all three of those, you know, understandings are problematic and can often be used to kind of sort of cut against each other but what's embedded of all of them is what josh said you know the elite versus the masses and this idea that there is a there's an evil in the world this kind of manishan idea that there always exists an, an enemy always exists an enemy and that enemy is the elite so as long as there is that kind of people versus the corrupt elite the elite that don't work for the people it can effectively manifest itself in different ways. Now, the next thing I was going to go on to, which I think is quite interesting, is the, the question of how do we distinguish um, politicians as populist? Because populists have been described as people that want to mobilise the masses, get people on their side, you know, create a feeling of sort of like, you know, you have been oppressed by this current establishment. But as Jan Werner Muller, a historian and uh, author of the book What is Populism, uh, highlighted, isn't that like what all politicians say? Because all politicians will say, oh, the current party and the current leadership that's in power aren't working for you. So do we call them populists? Kartik, what do you make of that kind of caveat that Jan Werner Muller threw in there? I wanted to pick up on something that you said uh, a little bit earlier about the Manishian idea that there's always an enemy. Um, that is actually something that makes a lot of people very, very angry. That's why a lot of people that, a lot of people, especially on the right wing, you'll see in the 21st century, you'll, they'll jump from ideas to ideas to different topics. And that's because they always feel that there is an enemy. So they, they will get angry about one thing 
then they'll go quiet for a bit, and then they'll get angry about the next thing, and then there'll be a sudden outburst of anger, like we saw in the Capitol riots. You know, there was a consistent anger throughout the Trump years, but when it culminated in something quite horrific, and that's why you see these events where they culminate in something quite horrific. So, Josh, before I go on to answering James' question, what do you think about, you know, was the Capitol right a cul- Capitol riots a culmination of populist anger? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Donald Trump is the the absolute the the epitome of the populism started by the Tea Party movement all the way back in two thousand and eight. And I think he's the he he he. I I I I, uh, I shiver to think that he is the end of what will be populism in the US. <laughs> but those those capital riots were almost certainly sort of a um a peak in populist populist rhetoric. Um, reaching out to the masses, media and media sort of uh, rousing media speeches and so on coming from Fox News and Tucker Carlson. And that eventually led to what was almost certainly going to be some sort of riot in in any sense. And what transpired is absolutely a a showcase of of populism in the States and especially Trumpism, um, which I think is its own special, special form of populism, as, as I could as I could go go on about that. Because the, the, the Tea Party movement kind of uh, was born out of sort of uh, contempt towards uh, those who benefited from the um, financial crisis, wasn't it? Yeah. The kind of Wall Street liberals that exist, which is absolutely. kind of what Donald Trump's campaign was all about, wasn't it? Well, absolutely. So Occupy movements that have been prevalent across the US since the 1990s um have 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 happened for ages and and that is what i would see as as this the modern form of populism that is uh which is which is i would say different to that of the original obviously tea party boston tea party and so on um occupy movements are a a classical part of american democracy since the 1990s especially and the uh occupy wall street and the tea party movement are just another another version of those i think you could find their origins more in ron paul um than in um sort of as as the republicans like to paint barack obama um i think it's it's a lot more founded in republican bases um, that were displeased. There's obviously a left-wing element of the Occupy Occupy Wall Street, but the prevalent one and the one that survived all the way into 2016, you know, you see Trump speaking in tons of his rallies, praising the Tea Party movement. It's very much um, focused on um, being, a, being an initial sign of the oppressed masses realizing that they are oppressed by an elite view, Wall Street, um, who are just like an extension of the democratic arm. And you could see that being played upon throughout the Trump presidency, especially um, in far-right communities surrounding stocks and Democratic senators, family members purchasing stocks and so on. So anti-Wall Street, anti, um, anti-sort of uh, mainstream banks uh, was an integral part of Wall Street, an integral part of the Trump, Trump presidency as well. Yeah, and before I throw back to Kartik and in his in the original question posed to him, it's quite interesting with the case of uh, with the case of Trump because. Um, and it kind of falls into that strategic conception of populism that people use it to kind of benefit them in the moment. You know, Trump always talks about Wall Street liberals not working for and being Democrat backed, etc. And when when he when he won uh, the election back in 2016, uh, when he formed his cabinet, his cabinet actually consisted of a lot of former Wall Street 
executives, one of the most notable ones was uh, Steve Mnookin, who became his, uh, uh, I think, the cabinet member for the Treasury, um, which is you know quite hilarious when you think about it, because you've got someone who was so anti-elite in his, compa- in his campaign, but then was basically just reinforcing the establishment within his own sort of presidential uh, tenure, which is quite interesting. But I'll throw back to uh, Kartik in uh, in terms of what what do you think? Kind of how can we distinguish politicians to to populists? Yeah, um, that you, you before I again before I answer your question, you picked <laughs> up on an interesting point. Um, yeah. You said something about correct me if I'm wrong here that he recruited a lot of the members of his, of the establishment within his own cabinet, and and that's basically the fundamentally the influence of populism and the impact on the electorate is that people think that they're voting for a but they actually get b even though they've been told that they're getting a so you know they are fundamentally voting against their interests and that is not for for me to say that they're suddenly you know they should vote one way and they should read up on what they should vote for and stuff like that but that's the way populism is communicated and on the question of communication which is where i can answer your question is Mm. There are elements of populism within each politician. You know, if you're a politician, you want to work for the people. And that's the traditional idea of populism itself, that you want to work for the people. But the being a good communicator and being a good populist is two separate things. I think you can be a, a terrible communicator, but you can also be a really, really good populist. Mm. You know, Ron DeSantis, I, this is a person that doesn't really like the media. Is he a populist? I could argue yes. Josh, would, what would you say whether Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis is a populist or not? I think I think absolutely he has populist tendencies, but I'd like to push back slightly on what you said, that there's an element of populism. I think the moment you open populism to simply being speaking for the people, you're mm. sort of making it, making it a bit too vague. I think you really, I think I would pinpoint populism on specifically the antagonism found between the people okay. and elites. Mm. So I think, I think, Speaking for the people is, I think, different than speaking on behalf of the people against um, an elite. It's it's not about, I think sometimes you can find populism can be inflated in left-wing parties. You can find that in uh, Bolivia um, and so on. Um, and and I, would, I would push back against those claims because the idea is you're raising workers out of out of poverty and to and out of false false consciousness and out of the original position they're in you're not vindicating the way they're living now you're attempting to change that and in the same way you've still got that antagonism towards an elite so i think you're i think it, to dilute populism simply to speaking on behalf of the people is will we'll make that really vague and lead towards calling someone like trump a populist and calling mm-hmm. someone like Corbyn then a populist which I would argue perhaps dilutes it a bit too much mm. and what what can I come in quickly and also say and this is going to sound as if we're just like all ganging up on Kartik here but um <laughs> I think the, th- the thing is and you said about how you know populism means like you know you get one thing but you're at, or you're campaigning for one thing but actually you'll get you're getting another thing I think and this sort of lends to my sort of feeling about populism as being a very case specific thing, because say, for instance, if you I, I like I think that the reason why Trump used populism 
was because he knew it would get into power. But once he got into power, he basically did whatever the fuck he wanted. And I think that's kind of where he used populism for arguably a very damaging thing because, you know, he was a a bit sort of like slimy in that regard. But then there are populists who genuinely have a sort of manifesto behind them where, you know, what you see is what you get. I take one case for example the current italian uh uh winning party uh fratelli d'italia or brothers of italy um they told the electorate exactly what they stand for and they said you know we are you know very sort of you know that right right wing authoritarian wanting to make sure we work for the people of italy and not you know the like aliens coming into uh, as it's often been labeled as um but they got voted in so yeah but go on Karthik, i'll throw that back to you yeah no my question comes in as to then most electoral most electoral campaigns follow this uh sense of you know this government is not working for you for a reason right keir starmer to an extent has tried to communicate that within pmqs within any media interview he's done that this government is weak they lack character they lack you know any compassion whatsoever and this is what a labor government can do for you is that in itself populism this is a question i pose to both of you i would say no because at no point is he suggesting that the establishment itself is broken he's he's effectively highlighting that maybe the conservatives approach to the role of the establishment or the director of the establishment if that's how you want to call it Mm. is wrong but he's not actually saying the establishment itself is corrupt or flawed in any sort of you know uh in any way Um, well he is saying that about the conservative party establishment yes he's he's saying that about the conservatives but the concert effect the establishment is in if you think about it is 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 kind of like it's It's very broad yeah it's broad it doesn't necessarily entail the conservative party you know if labor were in Mm. government for 12 years we'd be talking about them as being the establishment so actually that kind of idea of the establishment is quite sort of vague and can sort of manifest itself in multiple of different ways Mm. i don't think it's a binary but yeah yeah, I think I, I think I'm I'm semi in agreement with you there, Kartik. I think he he is obviously adapting, but but I think it's it's a I think he's calling more on incompetence than he is on active. Oh, that's not true. Well, I think he's calling more on. I think it is a form of. Uh, I think it is a form of populism. I think opposition parties, especially the Labour Party, has to have a form of populism within the UK, um, generally because that's how. That's how social democracies form in in Europe, mostly, especially in especially in Western Europe. So I think that's the that's the position Keir has had to take, and I think that's what, um, barring maybe Ed Miliband, uh, a lot of opposition Labour leaders have have had uh, for for a long time now. Um, yeah, I think I think I'd have to think about it a bit more, but I I agree with you on a on a basic level that he is employing uh, some mm. populist tactics. But he's I think he's simply calling Conservative Party the elite. I think he isn't criticizing the establishment as in the form of government he can't he and he can't criticize that because Keir Starmer is fundamentally a part of that um mm-hmm. he's he being a, being one of the leading civil servants head of the crown prosecution service and so on for him to criticize the government and the way our our democracy is set up is to speak against pretty much everything that he stands for and has ever done so yeah. I don't think I don't think that's a step he but, can take nor wants to 
but then by that virtue, wouldn't all opposition parties then kind of fall under that bracket of kind of semi-populism? Like, for instance, we all think that Labour's going to probably be in government very, very soon. Will the Conservatives then kind of like either choose to or be forced to adopt a quite populist standing can't it i i uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, no i'm burning to say something the reason why i do think kiss Starmer to an extent is a populist is if you think about the way he came in to the leadership of the labor party what he was saying at the start what he's saying now you know there's a book that josh kindly recommended to me by oliver eagleton i tend not to read a lot of oliver eagleton but uh you know the yeah, I've got it right here as well, Josh. You're, you're oh, looking for oh, <laughs> uh, No. So, yes, there has been a shift as to communicating what he genuinely thinks is right for the country, as to communicating what he thinks will win votes and then subsequently get into power, which, in my opinion, is still right for the country because, you know, I'm a Labour Party member. But I think there's something that we haven't necessarily picked up on, or we might have, uh, but not touched on uh, in a at depth, the strategic uh, way of thinking about populism yes. that, James, you said, I think there's something, the reason why I think Brexit was fundamentally very, very, very populist is there's an interview by a man called Douglas Carswell. He was a UKIP MEP. And he talks about in the early 2000s, trying to make the anti-European movement a grassroots movement. So I think in the strategic wing of populism, trying to sow anti-establishment to a particular cause is what makes it fundamentally populism. So the populist element of Brexit didn't start in 2016, didn't start after 2016. It started in 2001. Mm. That's my opinion. So what do you guys think about that? Does, you know, trying to make every, trying to make a certain issue, a grassroots movement, um, fundamentally populist because this is something that during the brexit campaign carol cud cud i can't pronounce her name carol Cudwallada, i think i think that's her uh name she picked up on something you know why are this these are constituencies where europe is investing a lot of money why are these people voting against europe and when you do an analysis of why they think europe is bad for their constituency why they think europe is bad for them they link their sentiments all the way back to 2001, and it becomes a grassroots movement. So, Josh and James, what do you think about that? Well, I think what the interesting thing about Europe is it's, it's kind of its own case that can kind of be discussed in a, a lot more depth than I'm sure we'll, we'll do in this. But that Europe's, Europe's interesting because obviously it's something that uh, European states have subscribed to for a very long time with, uh, you know... It, in some cases, little to no kind of choice from the electorate. And if we take the case of um, of Greece, um, you know, Greece have gone through some major financial difficulties in the last in the twenty first in the entirety of the twenty first century. And what that has led to is parties such as Syriza, which is a very left wing sort of egalitarian based party who is saying, hold on a second, you know, Europe isn't really working for us. Um, you know, the financial crisis can be down to, you know, European liberal elites, banks in Switzerland, etc., who are damaging domestic economies. And 
you know, and it's it's quite interesting because in in Greece, for example, the reason why Syriza hasn't been successful is because actually the Greek electorate quite like the EU. It just hasn't really sort of like they haven't really been able to mobilise the population as they have with as as uh, you know UKIP and various wings of the Conservative Party did in the UK. So... There's there's a bit of nuance to add to that, and I think it's. Number one, because the grassroots movement element, and you know the media realized very, the media in the UK realized very very early on that if there's a problem, and if we bash Europe, we will sell newspapers. Hundred mm, percent. And the and the media in Greece hasn't necessarily picked up on that. Um, yeah. Well, I just don't think it had. Sorry, easier because you you popped it on the brief yeah. and it and it stood out to me. And that's what I think. You don't necessarily find a lot of anti-Europe articles because it doesn't it doesn't play with the electorate. And yes, that can link in with the grassroots point as well because the electorate has been exposed to anti-Europe anti-European sentiment for a very very long time. That's yeah. why it doesn't perhaps doesn't play well and what josh and and james what do you think josh might be itching to kind of add in on this but um we recently had the denmark elections and the i think it was the third or fourth uh party with the most amount of votes was a populist party that kind of came out of nowhere now the populist party and it's i can't quite remember the name of it it would have been that kind of like textbook populist like people's movement or something like that um you know had very kind of like anti-european sentiments but at no point were they ever saying we're going to take Denmark out of the EU because they just knew that the electorate wouldn't so it was more about kind of getting a better deal so I think the UK as I said before stands out as this kind of completely separate case a lot of scholars have said simply because actually the UK is is not in terms of geography connected to mainland Europe and there's always mm. been that kind of disparity, which is an interesting dimension, uh, but maybe taking us away from the populist element. Josh, what do you kind of think about what Kartik's been saying? Yeah, I think grassroots are fundamental to the idea of a, of a populist a populist government, especially one in opposition moving forward. Um, and I'm going to relate, hop over the pond right back to the Tea Party again, back to 2008, 2010, um, and just talk about the, the idea that it was a grassroots setup began locally in lots of local uh, constituencies across the US and then pushed forward into nat- the national outlook, hopped on by Fox News hosts like Glenn Beck, who would go out to uh, to certain events. And you have, you know, Fox News hosts like Glenn Beck and so on going to these events um, and pushing that forward. And it's the idea of grassroots, because at the end of the day, the people in terms of populism, nearly always an imagined community, right? They're nearly always a made-up subset of uh, of the community that what, what might not technically exist in um, in terms of like physical people, but the point is that you'll feel part of the community as the voting electorate. And that was what the Tea Party was pushing for. And um, that's, what, that's what it ended with. But obviously, you have the caveats that for the Tea Party and so on, lots of the events and so on have been sponsored by the Koch brothers who are some of the wealthiest conservatives in the world. Mm. So it's not grassroots in any sense. It's pushed by the elites. Which I um, suppose shows how fluid populism is, lending back to what Kartik said. Right yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's fluid. And I think we picked up on, and we could talk about this for ages, and 
I think we will after the podcast. <laughs> I think what we, we, what we picked up on is um, that what genuine populism is and how it's communicated can be two different things. But I do think that the communicative strategic wing of populism, at least for now, seems to be waning, um, evidenced by the American midterms. Uh, so after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the midterm elections that have just happened or are currently happening even. Uh, so, yes. Okay, and welcome back uh, to the second part of the podcast. We're going to move on to uh, the kind of the big international news this week, which was uh, the US midterm elections and was part of the reason why we asked Josh to come on uh, this week. So, uh, Josh, I'm going to pass straight over to you to talk to us what's been going on in America. Yeah, absolutely. So from the 8th onwards, we've had our voting and we're now for the Senate all in our three states with Nevada and Arizona still counting and Georgia heading to a runoff for the second set of midterms in a row. So we're going to I bet the voters in Georgia are very happy about that, having to do the same voting twice. <laughs> and it'll be it'll be very exciting, and I'm excited to talk about those those individual races. Um, but I just wanted to get a quick sort of litmus test about what you guys had heard about the midterm elections and what your your general thoughts were going into them a few days ago, and 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 perhaps sort of whether you're surprised or not by the results coming out today. Today, so Karthik, what 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 are your thoughts? So I am surprised. I thought. You know, judging by the way the economy in the U.S. is going, I thought uh, the Republicans were going to take the Democrats' lunch money. Um, it wasn't to that extent. Um, I've heard a lot of Ron, not Don uh, stuff. Um, I've also I was also analyzing what different you know different outcomes can mean for different pieces of legislation that the Democrat wants. Democrats want to pass through. Um, I've heard a lot actually about New York possibly uh, going Republicans. So I've heard that I think New York 3rd, New York 17th, New York 19th, then I think it was the 22nd. Correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, if at any point. That might possibly, there's basically a toss up between um, Republicans and Democrats. So that's what I've heard. That's, you know, parts of what I've heard. I might have missed some stuff up. But James, what, what have you heard? Yeah, I mean, I'm not massively, I'm not a big follower of US politics in terms of the actual kind of, I guess, like democratic processes. I kind of just sort of like follow them at the time. So this is actually going to be a really kind of like educational podcast uh, from my perspective. But the one thing that I, I guess that I was reading about was how this midterm election was kind of serving as a bit of a referendum as to whether the people want Trump, or at least maybe Trump were kind was kind of like pitching it that way because he is yet to declare that he will you know be standing as uh the republic or at least going for to be the uh, republican candidate when the republican do their primaries and so um i'm i'm quite interested I, well, I obviously the elections so far is not as kind of republican dominant as i think we were expecting it to be so it's quite interesting how trump might react to this result i think i've heard sort of stuff that apparently in his camp they've been quite disappointed by 
the results, but it, it all seems a bit confusing. I think even Biden's confused by it, but that might lend more towards his age than it does his uh, political competency. So, uh, yeah, I'd be interested to sort of learn a bit more about this. Did you see the video of Donald Trump saying, well, if they win, it's all because of me. And if they lose, it's not my fault whatsoever. <laughs> that was just peak Trump moment. Yeah. <laughs> but well, yes, Josh, go ahead. Yeah, it, it is. And absolutely, this is really seen as much more of a media shock than it is uh, than anything else. They are a huge prediction for this red wave they've been calling it, sort of um, championed by Glenn Youngkin, who's the governor of Virginia. He he thought in, in a way he was more of this sort of headwater for what would be an upcoming red wave. He campaigned in tons of gubernatorial uh, elections across across the across the states. And that just hasn't materialized. Um, and I want to I'll pinpoint a few races that were seen as these these close, really close races that actually ended up being, especially especially in Pennsylvania, and I think that's a good place to start because it um, pits um, a Pennsylvanian, so uh, Fetterman, who's a, um, who's a long-time civil servant in the state and uh, was pushing for this uh, pushing, pushing for this election versus Mehmet Oz, who, is, who for nearly two decades now has been this insane TV pharmaceutical um, uh, uh, producer and presenter. And he he was picked as an outside pick by Trump. He doesn't live. He didn't live in Pennsylvania. He was painted as an outsider coming in trying to speak for the people. And people were and it was quite quite strong amongst Republican media and a lot of more 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 mainstream media that um, Oz would win, especially because Fessman had suffered a stroke and so on, and he was seen as struggling and in, in uh, the one live TV debate that he did, but. In the end, he did. He did eventually pull through with um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, about two hundred thousand more votes than uh, than Oz did. Meanwhile, you can um, look forward to other races. New Hampshire was seen as really closing in on the on the Dems. They would lose what what was seen at the at the outset of the administration quite an important, um, quite a safe Democratic seat. But actually, in the end. It was a democratic seat, despite that Republican rush. Um, uh, however, obviously, you do have some uh, Trumpian candidates like uh, Vance in Ohio and, and Bud in North Carolina winning. But crucially, it wasn't the landslide in a lot of these states, especially, you know, you have Georgia and so on, that Republicans thought it would be. So it's been a real collapse. And at the end of the day, they only needed one Senate seat. Um, and they thought they were more, more than more than enough of a shoe in for that. The House is a slightly different story. Historically, the House they 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 could easily have gained you know twenty seats in the House this time round, but they're really struggling to do that. They might still just be a tiny minority. McCarthy might just have a, a tiny majority of, of the House by the end of this, um, especially in New York. And that's an interesting an interesting take, and we can talk about that when we talk about a pushback on Trump. Um, but yeah, House seats just haven't fallen for the Republicans like they thought they would. In most of the toss-up House seats, Dems have ended up winning, and that's been a and that's been a real focus of this absolute collapse of what what was a, a red wave and is now more more of a ripple than, than <laughs> anything else. Um, no, yeah, picking up on John Fetterman, you know, big respect to him because you know, you can even see in his victory speech that he seemed to be struggling a little bit. And, you know, when he had the stroke, I thought, yeah, Mehmet Oz is going to win this because that's how the American public tend to react to health issues of for their representatives. But 
against all odds, John Fetterman's managed to win. And I don't know if you saw the video of him. I think it was some fancy French dish that he was in. He was complaining about food prices. Uh, and uh, he went into Walmart or wherever, wherever they go into. Um, I tend to go into an Asda. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they were talking about food prices. And it was this really, really fancy dish that his wife wanted to cook. And, you know, so in, in many ways, the point I'm making is in many ways, Betterman is not the typical Democrat. You, if, you, if, if you, He's a big bloke. And if you go and have a look at a picture of John Fetterman, you could easily fit him into a Trump rally. Um, so, you know, that's just a bit of nuance I want to add. And I think Pennsylvania was almost leaning Republican, but John Fetterman has seemed to come up. And that's just an example of how it's shifted. Uh, in the last couple of weeks so yeah yeah absolutely Pennsylvania is a is a is a heavy swing state I think the reason really it went blue was only because Joe Biden Joe Biden's from Scranton um pick up the office I think he's uh, I think that's why <laughs> I think I think that's really the reason why Pennsylvania voters voted blue and Fetterman is not a democratic candidate and it's the same in Arizona Mark Kelly really isn't a democrat at the end of the day he 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 had Barack Obama come and speak. Mark Kelly, former astronaut, um, part of the part of the part of the army, you know, uh, a, a distinguished veteran. And but he isn't he isn't a Democrat. And he had to push almost push away from Barack Obama after after he spoke. Almost push back on the idea that he's in any way connected to that administration. And that's how you win these seats. You know, you're not going to win Pennsylvania on a on a Green New Deal sort of anything. Anything you know left of Mitt Romney, yeah, Mitt Romney, really. Um, you're, you're not going to win, so you have to be that toe centrist, strong on crime, um, because at the end of the day, that's how that's how you win these win these seats that are Republican leaning, uh, really. But I would like to move on now to talk about one of the big wins, I think, for the Republicans coming out of these midterms, regardless, and that's DeSantis, um, Florida. And sort of an, an an end of not an end, but a beginning of the end potentially for Donald Trump. You never like to say that because I've said it about a billion times, <laughs> but um, potentially potentially a, a huge setback at, at the very least for Trump coming out of these midterms. So for, Ron, the, for the purposes of our listeners, Ron DeSantis was running for the governor's race. Am I correct? Yeah. Okay. yeah so safely safely running. Um, I would say there's no real challenge to the governorship in Florida and DeSantis really, really hit that one home. Um, I, I think he I think he absolutely demolished his opponent at the end of the day. I don't actually have the percentages up no, for me, but it was, a, it was got a, them here. It's 59.4 yeah. to Ron and then Charlie Crist, 40 percent. And then the big winners, uh, Carmen Jimenez and in Independent, 0.4 and Hector Ruse, 0.2. Just absolutely bottled you know um it was it was never it was never a democratic uh a never never a race for the democrats to win it was simply a, a race to see how how much you could you know make ron hurt but at the end of the day they failed that florida right now is being positioned as no longer a swing state as it once was um i think that's probably fair i think that's not true for the forever i don't think uh, I don't think that is true forever, but I think right now with the personality of DeSantis and the safe senatorial seats for people like uh, uh, Rubio and so on, Florida is a red state currently and, and perhaps mo- one of the reddest, uh, really. So DeSantis's victory in Florida is a really important step for him running in two years' time. 
Um, and a few days ago, Trump did a spoken a rally called her, called him Ron De Sanctimonious, I think, which I <laughs> yeah. thought was one didn't stick. Was, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> I think I think multiple syllable, syllables is perhaps a bit too much for the for Trump. But um, it wasn't. I'm surprised that one didn't stick. But it's a it's a review. It's a review for um, DeSantis that ultimately people want his form of republicanism and he's gonna he's gonna push that forward uh james you want to come in yeah and just just for the benefit of myself and uh probably a lot of uh our listeners in the uk do you mind kind of just like explaining the i i guess the relation between uh trump and uh ron DeSantis? because i it's quite quite interesting because there's been all this talk about like Trump potentially returning. Um, how does Ron kind of pose a threat to that return? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start at the beginning. Born in Jacksonville, Ron DeSantis is is what I describe as a, as a perfect classical Republican candidate. Um, went to Harvard, Yale, worked for the worked as an, uh, a lawyer in the Navy, came back, worked his way up, has been a safe governor seat in Florida. He's, um, you know, he looks like a country club. He's a he's a proper Republican, proper Republican candidate, and that is, you know, I've I've described him in a past article as sort of an oven baked, you know, oven ready candidate, and he he really really is, which is um, where he's coming from. Meanwhile, you have the the new flashy form of Republican, which is a. a the the New Yorker born Trump who who pretends he's Floridian pretends he's not part of that elite. Meanwhile, DeSantis isn't part of that elite, really. Um, wasn't born part of that. Born in quite in quite um sort of impoverished circumstances and has risen up through uh through a pretty typical you know the Nord Stream one route of Republican leaders and governors. Uh, yes, Kartik. Um, I also, I think he's all, Ron DeSantis is almost like a third way for, if I dare use third way, uh, for Republicans. Uh, because, you know, the Republican Party is no longer, you know, the George and Jed Bush, uh, I just merged their name, George and Jed Bush uh, type of Republican Party. And, you know, it's waning away from the Trump brash Republican Party as well. So, it, yes, you could say he is the perfect Republican candidate. But he's almost the Donald Trump without all the flash. He still is a person that fundamentally claims that if you vote for him, you have one freedom. That was his speech. So he's he's not the George Jed Bush. He's not the sort of, quote unquote, centrist Republican. He's not the brash uh, look of Donald Trump. He is almost a Donald Trump without the brash look. So he's a in my opinion, a third way. But, but, do you, but do you think he maybe represents a sense of calm for the Republican Party? Because I think the one, re- uh, well, my interpretation of Joe Biden's win back in 2020 was that you had all this kind of, you know, volatility that came with Trump and people were just itching on the back end of COVID for a sense of stability, a bit of boring politics, which maybe Joe Biden... Uh, represented and so do you think that um, Ron DeSantis maybe represents that but within the Republican Party that we may not have seen really uh, in the limelight in the last sort of five years 
Josh is probably yeah, best I, to well, comment. Sorry, yeah, go on. I think I think there's a huge element of truth in that. He's seen as as a com- as a competent leader, and you saw that especially. You know, Florida's a pretty prime state for governors to keep their seats based on the amount of hurricanes it receives. It's <laughs> usually you. It's 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 absolutely true in American politics that really national disasters are an absolute gift for the presidents at the time because going and showing your face there, walking around there, gets you huge polling boosts. And that's and you saw and you've seen that with how DeSantis emerged uh, the most the most recent hurricane that Florida had. He's seen as a competent, strong leader. He's taken strong stances with Disney. He's taken strong stances against the woke agenda. I think in his speech he mentioned woke something like sixteen times in two he, minutes. Oh my god! I don't know. Okay, I encourage everyone to go and watch this. And you know, <laughs> yeah, he he literally emulated Churchill in his speech. Really? He, he, wow. But Instead of we will fight them, it was we will fight woke. And it was, I was genuinely cringing. <laughs> yeah, but that's what people, that's what he's captured the minds of the, the minds of Floridians with. Mm. The idea that he's fighting the don't say gay bill, which obviously you can't say in Florida, is awful. Like it's an atrocious erosion of human rights across that state. Um, and his, his attitudes towards um, immigrants from his horrendous stunt by flying migrants to, I think it was Maryland, wasn't it? As a, mm-hmm. as a, as a stunt about all this. He's, he is overall using what are horrendous tactics, tactics, but because he's not as outspoken, well, that's not true, because he's not as misspoken as Trump in a lot of scenarios, mm-hmm. people see he's competent, people think he's strong, and that's why this... Um, this midterm has been such a success for him, and he, I think it's it's a he's a real show in for that nomination in into at the end of two years time, and and that's why Trump I think won't be announcing his candidacy for for a while. He's going to he's going to hold off on it. I think it would be mad if he announced it now off the back of a lot of his candidates losing. Um, mm-hmm. Often often you don't have, but that's not his fault. Um, remember, it's not his fault obviously, and I don't blame him at all. Um, <laughs> But, but unfortunately, the people he chose were um, incompetent when it came to running campaigns. And I think if I if I can talk briefly about Georgia right now, that's uh, that's sort of summed up there. So Georgia is going to a runoff, as I just said. You have incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock um, in what is what was a red state. It was a real surprise when Joe Biden uh, won it a few years ago. Real surprise. Um, just just for context, uh, Georgia, you're talking about the Senate, the second seat in the Senate. Yeah. Second seat in the Senate. So we're talking about um, just one second. It will be Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Is uh, yeah. And um, just just quickly, Georgia, I believe, was one of the last states to be declared during the presidential uh, elections in twenty twenty, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yeah. So it's a it's it's seen as quite a key state and quite a good uh quite a good case study, and that's what, what I'm going to just briefly touch on now. You've got um. Herschel Walker, who's a famous uh, running back in American football. He's a, a big personality, a Georgian, um, you know, very well respected as a sports personality in the States, uh, in the state. And now, obviously, pushing to become this political personality as well, never having held office before. Up against Raphael Warnock, who's a, who's a, a, a you know, a, a, not a, a centrist, but massively appealing to the, the black vote in uh, in Georgia as well, and, and, a, and a, a relatively strong Democrat. Um, 
uh, at a preacher. I, I don't know if I mentioned that, but Trump endorsed Walker to get the nomination for the Georgia Georgia seat. Uh, Walker won, and he has been running what has been effectively one of the most horrendously organised campaigns in any of these midterm seats um, coming up this election. And it's been it's been really really clear and really pivotal that he's he's been struggling. He doesn't he he can't debate. He can't keep he can't really develop coherent sentences. He's been a, a struggling candidate, and it's come up recently that for someone who's anti-abortion he has twice paid for women to have abortions themselves who have who are going to father his kids he's threatened his his then wife with a gun he's been a, a horrendous candidate and yet we obviously see this as still a very close race and going to a runoff but i think oh, i don't want to put my neck out there but i do think that it's going to end with uh with a with warnock warnock winning um and it and it goes to show that people like oz um, uh, nominees like Walker have struggled and they've struggled because they've got that Trump nomination and they've been pushed into situations that really they couldn't have won. Uh, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how Georgia ends up. That might, that will probably be whether the Republicans win the Senate or not, but it'll be a really interesting, a really interesting race to follow in the upcoming few days and, and weeks. Josh, before we start to end, could you briefly tell us what this looks like for 2024? Also, could you tell us um, where, which way you think the Senate is going to go in the end, which way you think the House is going to go in the end, and which way, uh, well, governor results doesn't really matter in terms of the national picture, it matters more in terms of state by state. But what do you think? Oh, <laughs> the famous so last words. That's, yeah, this is, this is going to, after all this, after all this big talk, all of these are going to be wrong. So it's going to be, <laughs> going to be a small, small majority for the Republicans in the House. Um, it's going to be a retained Democrat Senate. Um, watch that be completely wrong. I think, I don't think I am, but I might very well be. And then, um, and then when it comes to governors, I think I think time will tell. I don't I don't really want to weigh in on how individual governors are going to go forward um, with this. I think it's been a it's some. I think maybe for the Democrats, Gretchen Whitmer in in Michigan is a is a good governorship to prop up and be happy about. I think Gretchen Whitmer is going to be a, a really phenomenal Democrat in the in the upcoming uh, few years, uh, and I think that's a really strong a really strong show of support. Um, for that, but uh, I, I, I'm also very wary about Ron DeSantis getting such a such a big mandate from his voters as well, and I think that's going to be going to be really really important for 2024 um, the upcoming elections. This is this is big. I don't think you're going to see as radical a pushback from the House as they would have done if they had got a huge amount of seats. I think that's been talked about quite a lot. I think the mishandling by um, I think it's Rick Scott and uh, Mitch McConnell is is quite well noted about how they've mismanaged their their funds in the runs up run up to these midterms. So whether that affects their power in the Senate and the House will be remain to be seen. But coming up on the coming up in the elections, this is actually probably a big win for the Biden administration, uh, especially right now and especially come up next election when people remember that actually all this chat. If, if the people, again, see the media in two years talking about this big red wave coming, they might just be a little bit more sceptical. But then again, we are talking about America and anything, anything potentially could happen. Thank you very much, Josh.
I just wanted to quickly ask you, because there's something I wanted to ask for a while. Um, in the last midterm elections that happened, oh God, I'm trying to think when the last one would have been, it probably would have been about 2018, I almost want to say. Uh, I believe the House of Representatives switched over uh, from Republican to Democrat. Is it quite sort of quite consistent that the House of Representatives tends to switch midway through a presidential term? Yeah, so ever since LBJ. Mm. Yeah, um, just, if you wouldn't mind just sort of like saying like what kind of, I know it's probably a bigger question than we've got time for, but kind of why why is that usually the case that it tends to, to switch? Um, I think I'd need, I need some time to think about that. It's nearly sure, always, sure. it's nearly always quite a lot of, um, well, it happens, it happens. It's a, um, a pushback against current administration. It happens when you've got two very similar parties, um, effectively running against each other. Um, and, and I think if you throw it back to 2018, that was called the, the blue wave. That was called the, when, um, Nancy Pelosi and so on swept away a ton of Republican votes in that in that Trump administration. So um, it's interesting. I would say it's, uh, I think, last, in 2018, it was pretty clear why there was this huge pushback, mm. um, just by the sheer incompetence alone. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it, I, I, you, you, think, you think back to that Trump administration, and it was nearly every day they were doing something, wasn't it? Nearly yeah. every day they were doing something classed as either incompetent or just malicious. And it, if, you, if, yeah. you, if you're thinking about bleach, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, it was pretty clear, pretty clear back then, and um, it's uh, it, it 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 does happen, and it and it uh, and it's been happening for for a long time now. Okay, well, thank you very much, Josh. Thank you very much, James. It's been a really, really fascinating episode hearing about you know both of your specialties Je uh, josh i know you love america which is strange because i don't uh <laughs> next week we've got a uh, special guest coming up we won't reveal who he is but oh just revealed their gender. great <laughs> um but it's going to be very very fun tune in next week and see you next week bye 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 bye